Good morning, church. My name is Brett. I am pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, but especially those who are new to us. Thank you very much for making us your church home for an hour this week. Special. I appreciate our worship team. Thank you, Pastor Robert and everybody else who participated to make our moments on Sunday special. And we can, um, we can find God in a unique way where our souls can interact and engage with him at a, at a really visceral level rather than intellectual. And we can honor him with the joyful noise that we make. You may not be able to sing very well, but whatever comes out of your mouth is praise. And um, when we do it together... There's something that happens in the spirit, not just for us as a people, but in the heavenlies for our community. This is why congregational worship is important, uh, not just to be together, but to do something together. And when we bind together in worship, something happens in the invisible realm that doesn't happen when we just do it individually. It doesn't mean that nothing happens when you do your individual worship. Something happens, but just not this. That's why it's important for us to be, be together and important that when you come in, you are fully engaged to participate in this, not just trying to figure out, God, please fill my tank. Help me this week. It's been hard. I need the worship team to just assist me in the process of getting to the presence of God so I can feel better about myself. Every once in a while, that's important. But I want to encourage you to come into worship ready to worship rather than needy be surprised what will happen to all of us and you as a result of concentrating on him rather than on you. Turn with me over to the book of Romans. We're going to continue our passage, excuse me, our series on grace, partnering with grace. And today the, the title is, the title of the sermon is Grace-Inspired Thought and Lifestyle. Grace-Inspired Thought and Lifestyle. Romans chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3, Romans 12, 1 through 3. Paul is writing, and he says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Lord, help as we study. Two things I want to concentrate on today. One, cognitive, excuse me, correct presentation and cognitive overhaul. Correct presentation and cognitive overhaul. The context that, that in which Paul is writing, is he, he's doing what he can to try to help Jew and Gentile live together in the church in Rome. He's never been to Rome, but he has a number of people who, are, who would be associates of his. He recognizes them as friends in his salutatory comments at the very end of the letter, saying, greet this one, greet this one, greet this one, greet this one. And so though he has never been there, uh, the people who know him well understand the concepts by which he governs church. And Paul was the foremost apostle of the, of the first century. Peter was significant, and we can call them one and one A, not saying that one was better than the other. They each had different roles and, and different responsibilities in the church, but none more doctrinally instructive than Paul. 
Though he had not been to Rome, those who were his compatriots and associates have been in Rome or lived there with the church and would be, if you will, transmitters of his philosophy of ministry and his sense of theology and how you incorporated the, the unusual mix of Jew and Gentile. Uh, the Jewish people, obviously, were the folks that came from Abraham. They are the people from which we get all of our right living. The scriptures, everything came from the Jewish people. We Gentiles have been grafted into that. Um, but there was no New Testament until Paul wrote it. And when he wrote it, it wasn't the New Testament. It was just a letter. People later came and said, wow, this sounds a whole lot like something that God spoke, not just a man's idea. And just like he spoke in the Old Testament, I think he's crafting a new way of thinking regarding Christ and his cross. And so we come up with a New Testament and an Old Testament. And Paul wrote two-thirds of it. And much of his writing had to deal with how in the world do you incorporate these two cultures that have nothing to do with one another and indeed clash all the time. They don't mix very well. Thus, he is constantly trying to say, you dear Jews who think you're all that because you come from the, the seed of Abraham and the root of Jesse and, and all the history that is that which is best for people to live by. You think you're amazing and you think the Gentiles are a little bit less than. Now you have a right to be proud because your heritage is rich, but don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Be careful. And you need some, some, some cognitive overhaul. You need, you need to come to God more correct than you previously come. You're coming on the basis of your heritage. You're coming on the basis of, of the pedigree. You're coming on the basis of that which has been handed down to you by way of, of, of inheritance. Uh, the, the, the scriptures, the prophets, the best way to live, the examples, everything. And you think somehow that the Gentiles are less than because they don't have any of that. You should be more careful. Now, you Gentiles, you have a problem too. And that you think, wow, God got tired of the Jews and he chose us. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. Though you are, are special, you weren't first. Now, first didn't mean only, but it did mean first. And so respect these, these, these people that came in with history. And I know you think that they were the ones responsible for Christ's death, and now you're the ones who call him your Savior. But please, remember the Romans put some nails in his hands too. Not just the Jews. And so he was dealing on both levels with pride. And I don't know a human being that is breathing that at some level doesn't deal with pride. Only half of the room said amen. <laughs> Which is proof of my point. Pride is that thing on the inside of us that wants to make ourselves feel better about ourselves because we know what we are. We know we're a mess. This is, why, this, this is why defeats hurt more than successes, please. See, when we succeed, when we get the promotion, it's what we ought to do. When we get the bonus for exceeding our quotas, that's what we're supposed to do. When, when, we, when we graduate... I, and, and this was just me, maybe not you. When I graduated from high school, mama was happy, daddy was happy, grandparents came in, it was a big moment. And I, I literally said to my mom, wasn't this what I was supposed to do? Why are you giving me all these gifts? If I hadn't graduated, what would you have done? 
I was supposed to do this. In the athletic world, it's, I was talking to some people who had won a Super Bowl, and they said it was great. It was really good. I said, but what about when you lost it? He said, losing the Super Bowl hurt more than winning it. He said, I, I couldn't go to sleep because we lost. This was a coach. Couldn't go to sleep because we lost. I was expected to win. And the winning didn't satisfy me as much as I thought it would because there is nothing in this world that will satisfy and fill you enough to give you significance for being here. It will somehow make you feel like you're worthwhile. Nothing. The world will always fail. It's empty in that respect. But every time we do fail, when we don't exceed, succeed in what we're supposed to, it is a confirmation of how much we are not what we think we are. And that's why it hurts so much. Every defeat hurts more than every success feels good because we know what we're not. And as a result of knowing what we're not, we do everything we can to try to prove we're not that. We can't stand the kind of presentation that we might give that looks like failure. We put on this mask. We make ourselves feel better about ourselves. We amplify our resumes. I didn't say lie. I said amplify. We do everything we can to try to put our best foot forward, even when it's not a good one, just to make it seem like we don't have a bad one. Everything about us wants to make ourselves feel better than we really are about ourselves. And that pride gets in the way of the will of God in us hearing and doing what we ought to, ought to hear, and, hear, hear, hear and do and be what we need to be. So Paul is doing what he can to try to break that in the church. But the beauty is that he doesn't come by force. Though he is an apostle of renown, again, barely equaled, maybe by Peter, but a little bit ahead. I mean, he, had, he, he went to Jerusalem to rebuke Peter. I'll say it this way. He went to Jerusalem and rebuked Peter. He wasn't going there to do it. But he found that Peter was being duplicitous, hanging out with the Gentiles, enjoying some, some good honey-baked ham. And, and, and then coming back with the Jews and not acting like he was with the Gentiles. Because the Jews would then dis, be disfavorable. They, they didn't like the fact that he was hanging out with the Gentiles. And he wouldn't tell the, the Gentiles that he was hanging out with the Jews. And, and, and Paul said, I confronted him to his face, said, you hypocrite. So I'm not quite sure what that means, but it did mean that Peter, Paul had some degree of authority. And he could have used it to say, do this. Which, when people get authority, generally, they don't waste it. They let everybody know they got something. You don't know that Paul is in charge here. He says, for by the grace given to me, I want you to know that I'm trying to help you understand that you should not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but with sound and sober judgment because God is allotted... To that person over there you don't like, a measure of faith. He's given over here the one you can't tolerate and you think needs to change every area of their life because you don't like the way they live. He's given them a measure of faith. He loves them. And it's a big revelation. And you ought to get this. If you don't get anything out of the sermon, you ought to get this. God likes people you don't. And I believe this, this last verse here in this passage contextualizes everything he's already said because he says for i.e. therefore I'm saying this about that 
And everything that Paul does is by grace. It's by grace. It's not by authority. It's not by strength of power. It's not by showing the stripes on his, on his sleeve. He says, by grace. And as evidence of that, the first part of this passage says, for, by the mercies or through the mercies of God, I urge you by them. Meaning, I beg you. Here we've got a man who's in charge begging people, not ordering. I could tell my children, take out the trash. I don't have to say please. I do, sometimes. <laughs> but I don't have to because they're my babies. I can tell them what to do. Paul has never been to this church, though he has people in the church who would be the, the, the parrots or the echo of his theology and, and his philosophy of ministry. And so he has some degree of comfort in writing what he's writing to them. He's not writing to strangers. He's just writing to a people he hadn't been to. And being folks with whom he has influence, he has the right to say what he wants to say, however he can say it, to best impart to them truth. And he could use his authority, but, but he begs. I beg you by the mercy of God. What Paul was motivated by in his authority was always grace. It wasn't strength. It wasn't power. It was relational grace. And he wants us to live by that because that's how he governs. And when we then superimpose the idea that God inspired Paul to say what he said, then we understand that God moves by grace. The way you got saved was by grace you have been saved. And it's not just, it's not just that grace came to you and saved you. It's that grace now lives with you to empower you to be saved. That the grace you received allows you the privilege of living best. And it's not about you just pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and understanding the Bible all of a sudden because you read more and you've listened better. There were times when you came to church before you were right with God and you had read your Bible and you heard the pastor, but you didn't hear anything. Do you remember those moments? when you couldn't figure out the right way to go. And it looked so foreign to you, these people who were living right and you weren't, and you couldn't, you couldn't figure out how to get through that door because there is no way somebody can come in on their own. They have to be introduced by grace. Grace has to open the door. And when you came in, it's not that you changed by yourself. It's not that you just got smarter and as a result decided, oh, I need to serve God now. Grace came to you and inspired you and helped you so that you can now be different in your approach and understand things that you didn't understand to become what you could not become on your own. So that now it's almost second nature for you to hear what I'm saying so that it benefits you. And it's no longer foreign. It is family. It is, it is a part of you. It is what you expect. And... Get this, what I'm saying is being amplified and God is saying other, other things outside of what I'm saying. You're hearing things about your own life as I speak that I'm not saying. Well, who's saying it? Except the Holy Spirit that's putting his finger on stuff and saying, get that, oh, that there, that there, that there. 
And then you come out of here, I'm, that, I'm back there shaking people's hands. I had somebody come to me. It happens every week. Pastor, were you in my house this week? <laughs> it was like you were talking right to me. Have you been talking to my friends? Do you know my husband? <laughs> I'm sorry. I've never met you before in my life. Well, how does that happen except God, who loves you so much, can, can, can make the message seem like I'm writing this just for you? Grace is a beautiful thing. It allows us the privilege of hearing different, being different, doing different. And Paul says, by the grace given to me, I want you to know this is how I minister. And it's only by grace that we can be saved. And so he starts with, I want you to know that that you need to change by his mercies. I urge you by his mercies, first of all, to present yourself as a living and holy sacrifice. You need to come correct to God. Correct presentation. I'm glad he he did qualify the the term sacrifice with living. That's good. But what kind of life needs to be presented to him except one that is sacrificed? Pick up your cross daily and follow me, Jesus said. If you want to be my disciple, that is the only way to do it. It is not just by way of philosophy. It's not just a change of mind. You have to die. You have to die. You have to pick up daily, not just one time when you got saved. You got to pick up your cross daily and follow him every day of your life. You need to get up, and some of the first things you do are say, Lord, I surrender. It may not come out of your mouth every day, but the attitude of your heart needs to be that, that when your feet hit the floor coming out of bed, you're saying, I'm yours today. I'm your girl. I'm your boy. Whatever you want me to do, whatever you want me to say, wherever you want me to go, I'm yours. Just tell me what to do and I will do it. It's no longer you who are the orchestrator and choreographer of your life. It's him. You pick up your cross daily and follow him. When we built this building, I said, I want a cross, but I want it in the architecture of our building. I don't want it separate. I want it in so that people have to, they they barely even know it's there. Some of y'all saying, you got a cross? Really? Yeah. It's right out here. It's one of our pillars. It's in the foundation of our structure for our overhang. I would rather have the cross be on the inside of you than hanging around your neck. Now, I ain't mad if it's hanging around your neck. You got an earring? I'm glad. You're representing something. But remember... Ain't nothing pretty about an instrument of execution. Nothing. It's, it's about making sure. In fact, I had somebody come to me the other day and say, why don't you have a cross in your building? I barely wanted to answer them because that question is so religious in its orientation. It has no scriptural merit to it at all, no credibility, but somebody believes that their religious tradition needs to be imposed on somebody else. But I was polite enough. I found grace. (laughs) And I said, we've got one in the structure of our building, and it speaks to the architecture of how we want the cross applied to our own personal lives. And even though it would be nice, I know you'd love one in our building. The reason we don't is because we want to use this facility as a place where the community can come and hold events where we can host and at the same time let them know what kingdom hospitality looks like. And when you walk in this building, 
you feel something. I don't know. I don't, I don't know what it, it's, it's not because we're so holy. I, it, it's not us. The Holy Ghost has just decided to reside here a little bit. And for that, I'm grateful. I don't take that for granted at all. Now, I know he doesn't live in structures made by hands. I get that. But his presence resides where his people are. And we abide here as best as we can in holiness, and he seems to want to hang around. So we had the police department of Fairfax County in here four or five months ago conducting a seminar on how to best do whatever they do. 400 officers in here. We served them, blessed them. They were blown away by your hospitality. And they were in here restrained constantly from whatever police talk would normally be. (laughs) By the atmosphere of the Holy Spirit that resides in here on the regular. So we don't have a cross in here for that because... I would much rather have people carry the cross out than in. Do you carry it every day? Do you walk out in your workplace and is the cross yours? Is it evident in your life? Is is your death so obvious that you are salt and light wherever you go? That it's not about you, it's about representing the kingdom. Jesus said... You are, Matthew 5, 13, the salt of the earth. Matthew 5, 15, you are the light of the world. The only way you can properly represent his light, being that which evidences his, his goodness and grace in a dark environment, is if you have died. It's no longer you representing yourself. It's not your resume and your letters after your name. It's about who you represent in the kingdom. Are you his light in the world? Are you the salt that stops the corruptive elements from spoiling the environment? Sin continuing to creep in and mess up people's lives. Do you ever, do you ever mess up the relevance factor and the friendship factor with a little bit of truth? I'm all about being relevant. There's a lot of stuff we do here that is not traditionally religious. Namely, Sitting on a stool and talking. (laughs) There are so many things we do here that don't have anything to do with my tradition. You have no fun. You have no idea how far I've come from where I was in order to be relevant. But one of the things we do not do is compromise truth. I do what I can to try to make sure that I weave it in so that it's not so caustic in its presentation that somebody can't hear what I got to say, that somehow they have to hurdle my presentation and the way I do things in order to hear what I got to say. No, no, I do what I can to make sure that I'm kind in what I say, that I'm relevant in what I say, but I don't stop what I'm saying. Is there anything about your presentation? That adds a little salt to the wound in order to deal with the infection that might kill the patient. It's going to be painful. Going to be painful. But are you dead? Do you represent Christ more than you? I'm not asking you to be me. Don't do that. Just be Christ in you. Be whatever light means in your world. Be whatever salt means in your world. Die. Die. That he might live through you. Be a living and holy sacrifice. Holy. Not just living, but holy. Holiness doesn't have much to do with how you dress. Ladies don't need to wear 
dresses down to the ankles, up here, no makeup, no hair done, no jewelry. There are forms of our Christian religion that say that's one of the best ways to reflect holiness. I'm not much into that. And they have their scriptural justifications for why they believe what they believe. But I don't believe that's a way to interpret that passage of scripture in 1 Peter, that women should not adorn themselves in such a way. I think it's more about how a woman begins to perceive her identity as being that which comes from the outward appearance, not that looking, looking nice is bad. Please look nice. <laughs> Please look nice. So I don't think that has anything to do with that. But though I, I can't tell whether somebody is holy by the way they dress... I can tell if they are unholy by the way they dress. <laughs> there are some things you can tell. I'm not going to be descriptive. You're waiting. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. You know. You know what I'm talking about. But it's even not the issue of whether you can discern whether somebody is holy or unholy by how they're appearing. Holiness is that which is in the heart. It's a passion to say, Jesus, I want to be like you. I want to think like you. I want to act like you. I want to talk like you. I don't just want to have a what would Jesus do bracelet. I want to have it down here. Holiness is that which is really defined by God's person. He is the only being in the universe that is holy. The only one. We are called to be holy like he is holy. But he is the standard. He broke the mold. He's it. Separate, distinct, different than anything else on the planet. And our life goal should be pro to progress toward that daily. Until the day we are no longer on the planet, we are still trying to become more like him every day. And doesn't the world need more of Jesus every day as ministered through you? Not just through word but through your life. As I said last week, and I'm going to repeat it, and I don't know how long I'm going to repeat it, but I probably am going to repeat it for, for every week for a while. Purity is a lost virtue. It sprouted wings and flown away in our society. People despise anybody who's a virgin. They think they're somehow naive and Victorian in their orientation, meaning the period, Victorian. Passe, irrelevant. May I say that if you are a virgin, I'm so proud of you. And this bleeds right into the next, next part of my, my message. We need a cognitive overhaul. There's something about the world that wants to conform you to be like them because they cannot stand anything that is not. The world doesn't want to be told it's wrong. And so it does everything it possibly can to make you appear like them so they are convicted of their life. And Paul says, don't be conformed to the world. Don't do it. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The world wants to press you and make you think that, you know, before you get married, you really need, you need to, like, take a test drive. 
need to kick the tires. You need to figure this thing out. No, you don't. That's not the standard by which God set intimacy to be performed. Intimacy on that level physically is to be done after you say, I do. And the beauty is, boy, when you get into it, you, you don't have the issues of placing somebody else's face on the person with whom you're being intimate. You don't have any experiences by which you can compare. It's just you two. And for the rest of your life, you figure it out. You fi and, and that's the beauty. Honeymoons are terrible. <laughs> when they are done the way God intended. They're not fun, except that you're in a place where you aren't normally. But you're figuring one another out. That's the way it's supposed to be. And the beauty is that you grow into something that you never could have otherwise. There are so many things I could say on this issue. But the value of having an experience like that is priceless. Then knowing that you two are the only ones that have been like this with each other. But most people have not experienced that. And so that, that ship has sailed. And it's kind of like, you can call it Magellan. By the lack of laughter, you've forgotten your history. <laughs> he was the first guy to circumnavigate the globe. Okay, let me start over. <laughs> that ship has sailed. You called it Magellan. <laughs> it's, it's docked at many ports it has. <laughs> there is never a bad time to make a good decision. And God can renew. God can restore. God can heal. Oh, there's hope. And if you are married and you're, you're faithful, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> I'm so happy for you. I'm so happy. God bless you. But you blew it before you got married. There needs to be at least a moment where you say, God, I'm, this, I'm not, I'm not going to just let time heal. I'm going to let you heal. And I want you to know I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't have an inheritance of relational integrity that I can pass down to my children. I don't. I'm sorry for that. I'm sorry I didn't obey you when I knew I should have. I'm sorry for that. But I can't fix the past, but I know you can, you can change my present and you can help me in my future. So help my wife and I, not just to act like that didn't exist, but help us to go through our future knowing that you have applied your forgiveness to our life and we have rightly adjusted our past. It's the best way to do it. And there are so many other remedies to the different circumstances in which people find themselves when they, when they, didn't, they didn't reach the bar. But God has healing and help for wherever you are so that you don't conform to this world. It is not proper to live together before you're married. It's just not. I beg you, if you're doing it, move. <laughs> I know it's expensive, but that's what it was supposed to be in the beginning. If you want to, test, if you want to be a living and holy sacrifice... Grace will provide the energy and, and, and wisdom to, for you to be able to pull this off. That's what grace does. It helps you. 
so that you can prove what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Mature will of God. When you do this, it might be painful. Anything you do that's going to obey God and not conform to the world is going to be uncomfortable. But it's good. It's always the best thing to do. It pleases God in the process. And after you finish and get through the plane, it'll please you. By the way, I'm not just talking with, with theology. I, um, I was a virgin when I got married. And I, I can't say that while I was living the first 20 years of my life, or 24 before I got married, 20 when I got right, 24 when I got married, I can't say that there weren't times when I wanted to do things that would compromise that stand. I was a virile young man. I had to restrain myself constantly. And, and, and I, there were times when I lamented that I didn't chase skirts like all my friends. But I knew it was right. It was just painful. But I can't tell you how happy I am. It is so pleasing now. It is so pleasing to me now that I made that decision. And good, pleasing, and perfect. The word perfect there is a word fulfilling. It means it, 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 the, the will of God will br- give you a sense of why it was important to do that when you begin to combine all of the circumstances of life and you wind up here, you say, that's why. I didn't know I would be at this intersection needing that oh, oh, from t- 30 years ago to apply here. Thank you, Lord, because I feel more complete now to adjust my life to fit that circumstance. Good, pleasing, and mature will of God. There's something on the inside of you that when you present yourself well and you have a cognitive shift that allows you to be the proof of how God's will works best. Now, as I close, this cognitive shift to prove what his will is needs to have this transformation. Now, I've already said don't conform to the world. But when you don't conform, you have to be transformed because the world is the only mold that we've got here in order to figure out what life is supposed to look like. And if you don't, if if you choose... To, to not do that, then something else has to be your model. And he says, I want you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what these things are. And how are you transformed by the renewing of your mind? The word transform there is the word metamorpho in Greek. And it's where we get our word metamorphosis. Now, I'm a biology major, and so I love science, especially my favorite course was parasitology. Yeah, study of parasites. I know, weird. But it's about life cycles, and I love life cycles. I love to see how things come to be and how they, they, they from, from where they were. It just, it's amazing to me. And the way I look at scripture is about processing beginning from end. It's just how God made my brain. And so you remember in second grade when you had the, the caterpillar? And, and, and they brought it in the aquarium, dry aquarium, and put some leaves and bolt, you know, branches in there and, and, and the caterpillar was eating and, and you 
please tell me you know what I'm talking about. And then a couple, after about a week and a half, the caterpillar just disappeared. And there was this little thing hanging from the branch. And it was a little, you, know, you didn't know what it was, chrysalis, cocoon. And, and, and about two weeks later, all of a sudden, something came out. It didn't look like anything that went in. And you were just blown away as a two-year-old. Man, that was cool. Transformation. Paul says, you want to be changed? Wrap yourself up in the cocoon of God's word. It's the only way we're going to fix our brains to think the way he thinks. Think thoughts after him so that we can then do what he wants us to do. Conform our idea to his by letting our mind be transformed by his word. The process through which the caterpillar goes is... uh, is it, he, the caterpillar just doesn't grow antenna and, and, and then kind of take a, 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 a metaphysical belt or a chemical belt and, and squeeze down its waist to make a thorax. It actually dissolves. It's called a process of histolysis. becomes goop. If you were to open it up within a five-day period, it would just drip out with goop. But there are a couple of cells that we would liken to be stem cells in our humanity they begin to direct all the chemicals to produce different kinds of cells that now make antenna and make six legs out of 33 or 34 and make a thorax and, a, and an abdomen and, and now wings. And God wants you to look something like you didn't look when you came in. Come on. Complete. That when people say, see, see you, they see Jenny, but they say that ain't Jenny. You ought to be completely different by wrapping yourself up in the cocoon of this word and saying, Lord, I don't want to be what I have been. And I don't have anything in this world at which I can look that helps me understand what you want me to be. But every time I go to that little black man's church, I feel something. (laughs) I feel something, Lord. And he tells me to read my Bible. That's wrapping yourself up in the cocoon of this word. Read your Bible every day so that you can come out different than when you went in. It is the only way, the only way transformation will happen in your brain that will affect the way you think about your money. It'll affect the way you think about your relationships. It'll affect the way you think about your education, your careers. Every area, the Bible has something to say about your politics. The Bible has something to say about your sex life, about everything. You wrap yourself up in this Bible, and all of a sudden you find yourself pleasing Daddy every day and doing more good than you've ever done and growing up the way he intended when he thought about you and thought about creating who you were. Oh, this is the way it happens, and it all happens by the grace he provides, not by you just working harder every day, but saying, Lord, I I surrender. Help your grace. Lord, help your grace apply to my life. Assist me in the process of becoming what I need to become. Let's pray.